to episode 71 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. This is your host, Greg Lindbergh. Here on episode 71 of Eyes Free Sports, our guest is a young lady who is a very accomplished Paralympic swimmer. Uh, She's a college student now pursuing a graduate degree and a very well-spoken, just a very impressive young lady who uh, has done so much in swimming and is now pursuing another path in adaptive sports, which I think you'll find really interesting. So let's go ahead and dive into the pool now for episode 71. Okay, so my guest here on this episode of Eyes Free Sports is McLean Hermes. And uh, McLean is a two-time Paralympian uh, visually impaired swimmer. McLean, welcome to Eyes Free Sports. Thanks so much for having me. Definitely really excited to get into this conversation and just uh, explore your your background, your swimming career, and uh, a lot of cool stuff here to to chat about. Yes. Awesome. So why don't we just uh, dive right into uh, as far as your personal background. Just talk to me about where you were born and your childhood. Um, Yes. So I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. My parents actually had three babies in six months, all under the age of two. My brother and sister were adopted. And then Hmm. six months the day later, I decided to show up. So (laughs) it was pretty hectic growing up, having just all three of us so close in age. And it actually kind of helped my parents see that I was having vision problems because my brother and sister and I, we were all pretty much developmentally at the same stage. And they would recognize environmental print when we were little. And around the age of two, my mom noticed that I wasn't um, recognizing as much environmental print as they were. And so she went to the pediatrician and said, I think my, like, I think McLean's colorblind. And the pediatrician kind of shrugged her off and said, no, she's not colorblind. And then when I was four, my four-year-old well visit, I failed the eye test so bad that the same pediatrician thought I was faking. And my mom was like, no, I told you she can't see. And so I got my first pair of glasses when I was four. And just every year after that, my vision progressed and got worse. And finally, at the age of eight, um, the eye doctor said, you know, I think something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. And so sent me to another doctor and she said the same thing, um, sent me to another doctor. And that doctor took one look in my eyes and said, your retinas are detaching. You're having surgery tonight. And my mom's kind of like, no, I have two other kids at home. Like, we'll come back tomorrow. And the doctor's like, I'm going to have a nurse walk you to the hospital now. So ended up having emergency surgery on my right eye or my left eye um, in October, 2009. And then about 10 days later, the retina in my right eye detached. And so had another emergency surgery and lost all the sight in my right eye and had a couple more surgeries on the right eye to try to repair the retina and the damage. But it was too far gone. And then my left eye have progressively lost um, the vision since. So now I just have color and light in my left eye. Right. Well, I see. Wow. So it seems like a lot kind of happened in a short amount of time, right? Yes. And what, uh, just thinking back, you know, what was like the most vision? What was the most that you were able to see if you can remember? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people tell the story of like, oh, I I got glasses one day and I could see the leaves on trees. And I didn't really have a moment like that where I went from like having really poor vision to then getting glasses and being able to see. But I remember when I was losing my sight 
that my mom noticed that I was reading books that I had read when I was much younger. And she asked me, why are you reading that book? You read that several years ago. And I said, well, it's the only print I can see. Like, I can't see the small print and the books that kids my age are reading. So I don't really remember like really seeing or the most that I could see, but I do remember some little things like that where it's like, oh, I could once read books that had fine print, but now I'm reading the books that first graders are reading because I, I can't see the font that third graders are reading. Right. I see. Makes sense. And then, uh, so did you actually grow up, spend most of your childhood in, in Charlotte? No. So again, my parents had three babies in six months, all under the age of two. And my mom called my dad at work one day and said, I need my mom. I'm going to Georgia. And he said, okay, let's go. And so they moved to Georgia when I was about three months old and I grew up in, um, Northeast of Atlanta. Oh, I see. Interesting. And then as far as uh, schooling and education, uh, were you mainstream throughout, you know, high school? And, and Yeah, so I kind of followed an interesting path. I was, it, I um, tested into the gifted program when I was in kindergarten or first grade and was involved in the gifted and advanced program um, all the way through elementary and middle school. But when my vision started to progress and it got worse, um, and I couldn't read normal print and I went to large print, it eventually turned into I needed to learn Braille. And so that was in sixth grade, I started learning Braille and I had a um, teacher for the visually impaired come to my school once or twice a week to teach me Braille. But it got to the point that I was needing too many services that just an itinerant teacher could provide. And so the county I lived in wanted to send me to one of the, like the only school in the one, only one school in our county had a full-time vision teacher. So they wanted to send me there, but it was about an hour bus ride from my house. And so in seventh grade, I started off the year going to that school. It lasted about six weeks. And I said, no, thank you. I'm going back home, like back to my school. Um, so I ended up going back to just the, the school I was in previously and doing all the gifted and advanced classes, but using a lot of assistive technology. So I use um, a CCTV, a magnifier, um, Braille, and then JAWS and Zoom text on my laptop. So it just turned into like a process where we all had to figure out what was going on and how I could access the same materials as my peers. And then um, again, my vision kept on getting worse and it came down to high school and the county was really pushing me to go back to the school that had the full-time vision teacher. And it, it wouldn't have been possible for me to go there and train um, for swimming because my sure. swim an hour away as well. So I would, I, I wouldn't be able to make it to practice. It just wouldn't have been possible. And so our County was really great. And they said, well, we have an online program that you could try. And so I did like a trial run and did a summer class going from eighth to ninth grade. And it was a fully online program. It worked excellent. And so I did that for high school, four years of high school, I did online school and it actually worked out really well because I was able to do dual enrollment classes and did some classes at the local college online, all online, and was able to um, transfer almost a year's worth of credits into college, which was incredible because it was free. And I had the support of my vision teacher while I was taking those college classes. So it worked out really well doing the online school because I was able to travel and train, but also get the access to the materials that I needed and were up to my education standards. Right, right. Very interesting. And definitely uh, sounds like it really worked out for you there for sure. Yes. And then so just fast forwarding to today. So do you currently attend, is it Loyola University? I actually, I graduated a year early from Loyola because I had so many credits um, going oh, wow. into 
I was able to graduate college in three years and I'm in my master's program now through Loyola. Um, but it's a, it's a fully online program. So I did Loyola in person. I mean, obviously we had COVID, so that took a bit of time away. Um, that was online, but went to Loyola for three years in Maryland and studied communications with a journalism specialization and marketing minor and graduated early, started my master's program while I was still in undergraduate. And now I'm doing that full time and I'll graduate next May when I should have graduated with my bachelor's degree, I'll graduate with my master's degree in emerging media. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Very cool. Hey, congrats on, on your education. Thank you. And then you actually did compete uh, on the swim team at Loyola. Yes. Yeah. So the coach at Loyola, um, he's one of the best coaches in the world for blind swimmers. He has a really great reputation um, with, Paralympic athletes and including athletes with disabilities on the team. And so when I decided that I wanted to go to college and I wanted to swim in college, that was the best program for me to look into because it's just incredible. It's a hundred plus people on the team. It's a division one swim team. And I was incorporated just like any other athlete. I wasn't treated any differently. I had friends, I competed, I went to every practice and did all the workouts and all the sets, and then also got the support of being a student athlete at the university. So it's a great program, and I loved being there. Um, sad that I, I loved that I graduated early just because it's a great accomplishment, but sad that I did as well because I would have loved to stay and competed for Loyola longer. Absolutely. But yeah, what an amazing opportunity to be able to participate in Division One sports, you know, with a disability. I feel like that's... Yeah such an unusual thing and it's you know just so happy for you to to have had that opportunity yes so let's uh kind of rewind now a little bit uh so as far as swimming talk to me about when you first got interested in swimming and maybe what age and what kind of drew you into the water yeah so again my brother and sister and i were very similar in age and my parents just kind of threw us into sports when we were younger um probably to get us out of the house but uh, my dad went, played college soccer and then was a professional golfer. And so hmm. uh, we we all played soccer when we were younger. We all played tennis. We all played golf. And each of us kind of found our own sport. And swimming was definitely my sport. Um, all three of us started swimming on our summer league team. I was four. My sister was five. and My brother was six. So we all started at the same time. And I was really the only one that gravitated towards the pool. And it's funny because the first summer that I started swimming, I only, I, I was so scared to swim across the pool. I didn't want to go in the deep end. And so I would get to the point where it went from shallow to deep and I would stop. And so all summer when I was four, it took me the whole summer to be able to make it across the pool. And I finally did. And I was hooked. And I told my parents, I said, I want to go to the Olympics. And they were like, all right, dude, you're four. Like you could barely swim 25 yards at the beginning of the summer, but okay, if this is what you want to do for you. Yeah. So continued swimming um, during the summer. And then when I was seven, I started swimming in a year round program. So I would swim all year long, not just during the summer. And it was structured practices. And after school, I would go and swim for an hour, hour and a half. And I loved it. It was hard. It was hard work. It was fun, but it was, it was just great. And then uh, when I started to lose my sight at eight, we didn't really notice a big change. It just didn't. Yeah. Again, at eight, I didn't really notice. I just got back in the pool and kept on swimming. But when I started to do fifties, so when you're 10 and under, you only really do one lap, 25 yards of a race and then you're done. But when you're 10 and older, you start to do fifties where you have to flip turn and come back. 
And so I would run into the wall every time I would try to do a flip turn. And my parents and I were kind of like, that's weird. Like maybe it's cause I can't see. And that's um, at age 11 is when my coach kind of picked up on it too and said, you know, there has to be a way we can figure this out because I was getting hurt. I was getting frustrated. My parents were ready to pull me out of the pool because it just wasn't safe. I was, I was getting hurt so often. So my coach said, give me a minute. Let me figure something out. And she came to practice the next day with a broomstick with a tennis ball at the end of it and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hit you on the head when you get to the wall. And that's when it started. It was incredible. She researched adaptive swimming and adaptive sports and found the Paralympics and um, was able to educate me and my parents on the Paralympic movement and started me on that journey. So I started Paralympic swimming at the age of 11, um, went to my first Paralympic meet at October, and then just continued with it and said, all right, I can do this. Now let's let's go for Rio. So Rio would have been in 2016. I would have been 15. And everybody, again, was kind of like, all right, that's a lofty goal. But if you want it, like, go for it. We'll support you. And that's what I did. I trained super hard. We moved, I moved swim clubs to an hour away and was able to train and do the online school and travel. And it was incredible. I made Rio by one one hundredth of a second. Um, I was 15 years old. I was the youngest athlete on team USA and got to swim at the Paralympic games. So that was an amazing experience. And then said, all right, I finished eighth. I made a final, but my goal is to win a Paralympic medal. So let's keep on this journey. So I graduated high school and then went and swam in college. And, you know, COVID hit. <laughs> so I had to kind of step back and reevaluate and say, is this what I really want to do? And it was. So I continued to train through COVID and thankfully made Tokyo and was able to compete in Tokyo in 2021 and finished sixth in my best event. So I got... I improved upon my results from Rio, but still not quite where I wanted to be. So now I don't know if you know this, but I actually moved out to the Olympic training center last week. Um, I'm in Colorado Springs, Colorado training oh, wow. for triathlons. So I two, um, two time Paralympian in swimming. Don't know how to run. Don't know how to ride a bike, but I said, I, this is what I want to do. I want to try something new. I want to try something that's fun and exciting. And not that something isn't fun and exciting, but it's kind of become monotonous for me where I've done it every day <laughs> for the past 12 plus years competitively. Let's, let's see if I can do something else. So, um, after I graduated college, I said my college swimming career is over my, I competed at world championships this summer for swimming and said, that's probably my last big meet for swimming. Let's dive into something new here. So now I'm training for triathlons and hoping to go to Paris in 2024 and compete in triathlons. Wow, that's amazing. So you're definitely, definitely challenging yourself, obviously, with something brand new here. Yeah, and it's it's really exciting because coming from it's exciting and humbling because coming from a sport where I've been one of the best in the world for so many years to now coming into a sport where I have no idea what the heck I'm doing. It's very hard because I'm going from the top back down to the bottom and having to work my way up. But it's also exciting because I know that if I put in the hard work, if I practice, if I stay with it, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I've seen the results in swimming and hopefully I can see those same results in triathlon. Right. Sure. 
And uh, just rewinding a little bit to as far as the Paralympics, um, just talk to me about, you know, 2016 Rio and then Tokyo obviously was postponed to 2021. Yeah. Just uh, thinking back on those two Paralympic events and just in general, those experiences, any, any, you know, any real big takeaways that you kind of walked mm -hmm. away with uh, that you yeah. learned or. Interesting. I was having a conversation with one of my teammates the other day and she and I were actually roommates in Rio and it was both of our Paralympic games. And we were talking the other day and she said, do you remember when we walked into the opening ceremonies and how cool it was that everybody was chanting USA? And she goes, I was crying. And I said, yeah, I remember that. And she goes, how did you feel about it? And I was like, I don't know. It was cool. And so uh, she is much older than me. She's I think 34 now. So she would have been 29, maybe yeah, 28, 29 in Rio. So it's just interesting how I was so naive. I was 15. I'd never been away from home for that long. My parents had to sign over custody of me to the Olympic committee. Like it was an incredible experience, but it was also very but like a whirlwind and uh yeah i was very naive i didn't fully grasp the situation of what was actually happening and how cool it was to be at a paralympic games living in a paralympic village competing against athletes from all over the country um so that was that was it was it was awesome it was great i loved my experience but i feel bad that i didn't really fully grasp what was going on and then in Tokyo, it was just so different. I mean, there were no spectators. Sure. Um, you couldn't interact with people, even in your own country, let alone other countries. I mean, we couldn't interact with people in other sports from the U.S. So it was really hard. Like, I had met a lot of friends in Rio. and We'd stayed connected over the years. And I got in trouble for hugging one of them because, like, we weren't supposed to interact. And they were from another country. So it was really hard. And then not having my friends and family there to support me was it was kind of eerie when you walked out like to the pool and previously in Rio, they were chanting and cheering and singing and clapping and noisemakers. And it was just utter silence in Tokyo. And so that was a little off putting, but I mean, when you're a blind swimmer, you can't see the crowd. So it didn't really impact me when I got in the water, but it was more of like a shock to the system when you walked out and it was quiet. Um, but it was also a great experience too. I mean, the village was very well done. The transportation was great. The food was excellent. Um, the Japanese people were incredible and they were so kind and welcoming and happy to see us because they hadn't seen people in so long that they hadn't been able to interact with people in so long. I mean, just like us, we were like, wow, this is awesome. Um, right. But it was scary. I mean, every day we were COVID tested. And if you tested positive, you'd go into quarantine and you'd be stuck there for two weeks in a room and not be able to compete. So everybody was really cautious and tried their best not to get sick and not to get COVID. And it was interesting. We went to the, um, the, a like military base in Japan before moving into the village. And we didn't get to interact with the people on base. It was kind of like we were monkeys in a cage. Like they would walk by, we would walk by, but like we couldn't interact with each other. So I would have loved to have been able to interact with the people on the base and interact with other people there and just get to meet them and talk to them and, 
I, that's something that I missed was the interactions and the personal connections that I could have made in Tokyo that I had made in Rio. Sure. Wow. What a, yeah, like you said, such a unique dynamic, such a unique environment, just with all the COVID protocols and... and once in a lifetime, hopefully nobody ever has to experience that again, but certainly a once in a lifetime experience. Absolutely. For sure. And I know I have interviewed a few other Paralympians uh, who competed in Tokyo and just talk to me about the delay. You know, once you found out that the games were going to be delayed by a year, how did that impact your training? Well, I was really fortunate that literally the week that COVID hit and everything shut down, my parents moved to the lake. And so when I got sent home from school and had to move back in with my parents, uh, I bought a wetsuit off of Facebook Marketplace and we took the bungee cord off of my mom's paddleboard and I would swim in the lake every day and bungee cord myself to the dock so I wouldn't get lost in the lake. Um, but I was really fortunate that I had a place to swim. It's obviously not the same as swimming in a pool and not being with a team and it got really boring just swimming in place for an hour plus every day but i was able to keep a feel for the water and i think that was really important and helped with my uh helped getting back into the pool but it was hard i mean physically yes it was hard not having a pool not having a place to swim every day but it was also hard mentally not being around my teammates and not knowing we didn't know for a while what was going on i mean the whole world didn't know what was going on but we were in this limbo of like all right are games happening do i still need to keep on training are games not happening are they going to get canceled are they going to get postponed it was really scary and um scary but like in a way that your life could be decided by these people making this decision. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Or is it going to be postponed? And I was for the postponement. That's what I gave my two cents on. I wanted it to be postponed. I knew that it wouldn't have been right to hold the games because of COVID in that time. I hoped it wouldn't get canceled and I fought for it to get postponed. And luckily it did. And I think that just gave everybody a sense of like, all right, we can take a breath now. We can think of ourselves in this moment and maybe we don't have to go out and swim in the lake every day and train. Like we can rest, we can recover. We can make sure we're connecting with our friends and family and doing schoolwork and being with our family in this time. And I, I did that. I took some summer classes. I connected with my family and friends, like um, still swam in the lake every day, but did, well, that wasn't my only focus anymore because I knew that I'd have another year to get back in the pool. But I also think it offered a lot of people an opportunity who wouldn't have had an opportunity. I mean, there are several people that made the team in Tokyo that if it would have been held in 2020, wouldn't have made the team. So I think it was just overall a good decision to have the games postponed. It just, in the moment, was very scary not knowing what was going to happen. Right. The uncertainty, for sure, just affected us in so many ways. Right. I know that you uh, have set a number of records uh, when it comes to swimming. Any specific records that you're really most proud of or that you'd like to mention? I held the world record in the mile for a couple of years. That was pretty cool. I think I set it when I was like 14 or 15. Um, I love distance swimming. So I love swimming the thousand in college and the 1650 in college. And I improved Amer those American records a lot um, going into college. I think I'm my 1650 American record, I think I dropped like two minutes in college. So that was really, really exciting. And same with my thousand, I think I dropped like a minute and a half from that time. So both of those were exciting to set while in school and with my teammates and competing at like in a division one program. Um, my coach made me swim the 200 butterfly this year. 
in March and one of my teammates and I had a bet against each other and I won and I set the American record and he had to buy me breakfast. So that was an exciting one because I got free breakfast out of it. <laughs> I don't know. They're just, it's fun to improve upon your times and then it's even better when it's an American record. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's fun to swim fast. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And then, so I know you did mention uh, now that you're, you're at the uh, Olympic and Paralympic Training Center out there in Colorado Springs. Yes. And uh, so now you just moved there very recently. You mentioned, and just yes. kind of give us maybe some inside perspective into what, you know, the day-to-day -day life at that training center looks like. Well, I just moved out here, so I'm getting adjusted to the altitude. So that's something I haven't been fully pushed into training yet because I'm adjusting to the altitude, which thankfully I'm allowed to do that and not being forced into training right away because it would not be good. Um, but we swim every morning and then usually there's a biker run session in the afternoon. Sometimes we lift, sometimes we do a bike and a run. Um, sometimes it's a long run or a short run. So, it, I mean, it's really a day-to-day -day kind of process what's going on and what we're doing, but it's so fun because swimming is just one sport and you just swim and you swim 10,000 yards and you're done for the day where in triathlon you swim a little bit in the morning and you run a little bit in the afternoon and then you maybe do a long bike ride like it's not just one activity you're doing multiple activities and they're all equally as hard well swimming isn't as hard for me but it's still <laughs> you're working out and you're trying your best and you're putting all your effort into those workouts and it could be a hot, sweaty workout outside on the track, or it could be a long, steady bike ride. It's just, it's all so fun and new and exciting. Right. Very cool. And as far as uh, comparing, you know, running and cycling, I'm curious, are you finding one of those to be more challenging than the others so far? I hate running. Um, <sighs> I've always hated to run. And when I told people, I, like my friends from when I was little, that I was doing triathlons, they were like, you know, you have to run. Yeah, I know. Um, because <laughs> when we were little, my best friend and I, we would we swam together all growing up. And so we would do dry land together and our coach would make us run around the building a couple times. And I would always hide on the playground because I hated to run. And my friend would, Michaela would drag me around the building. So, and I remember one time we did a 5k together and the next day my mom was like, Michaela, how do you feel? She goes, my arm's really sore. My mom goes, why is your arm sore? You're running. And she goes, I was dragging McLean behind me the whole time because we were tethered and we were using a hand tether. And so she said she was dragging me behind her the whole time. So running is definitely not my strength. Obviously the swim is my strongest. The bike is just so fun. Um, it's, you go really fast and it's just, it's really fun. And then the run, it's just kind of, I got to survive it. And I've, I've told the coach here and talked with a lot of the athletes, my body just isn't used to running. It's not used to the impact and the gravity and m like my muscles have been swimming and my body has been swimming for so long that standing up and putting gravity and pressure on my knees and my hips and those different joints and muscles, it's hard on my body. Um, so I'm definitely working my way into it, progressing it into the sport because I don't want to injure myself. I don't want to overwork myself. Uh, but I'm also having to learn how to run. I was never taught how to run. It was just go run um, where I was taught how to swim. So now I'm having to be taught how to run and it's difficult. I don't like sweating, so I don't love running, but I know I need to get better at it if I want to succeed in triathlon. So I'll do it. <laughs> right. Right. Yep.
And I know you did mention uh, the hand tether. I know there are a number of, you know, hand tethers, waist tethers, whatnot. Yes. Do you have a preference on tethers and running? I like the waist tether for the run. Um, for the swim, my guide and I are tethered on our thigh, so like thigh to thigh. And then obviously for the bike, we do the tandem bike. And then the run, I like the waist tether the best. Gotcha. Interesting. As far as other adaptive sports, I'm curious, have you had the chance to play, you know, goalball, beatball, uh, you know, five-a-side soccer, anything of that sort? I have, but I'm not very coordinated. Um, when I was little, I went to a couple of different camps um, to introduce my, like, introduce me to blind sports, and I loved goalball. I loved just throwing things at people, so that was a lot of fun, but I would get too, like, antsy and jumpy and, like, anticipate where the ball was going and then would go too early and it wouldn't end up where I thought it was. And then I remember I played like beep kickball one time and just tackled the base and then cried and fell. So I, yes, I've tried and soccer. I did not like the five aside soccer because I couldn't figure out where the ball was. So I, mm. I just don't think I was meant to play a sport with a ball because I'm just not very coordinated. Um, my mom said if she could do it over again, she named me grace just to be a joke because I'm not graceful at all. <laughs> I like that. That's funny. <laughs> um, so I know as far as education, you talked about uh, majoring in communications, journalism, media. As far as career goals, what uh, what do you aspire to do career-wise? I'd love to be a public relations liaison for some type of government entity. I mean, I'd love to work for the FBI and be a um, connection between them and the people and write press releases and run social media and um, write stories and just be be a, a, a line between them and the people. Um, I love Washington, D.C., so that's where I ultimately want to live and end up working. And I just think it would be really neat to work for um, some type of government program doing that. I love to write and I love to speak, so I'd love to also do public speaking on the side and freelance journalism. But definitely, like, my main job being a part of a public relations type setting. Gotcha. Very cool. Hey, you're definitely a great speaker. I can tell that <laughs> right off the bat. You. So you definitely, you know, have a future in, in that uh, regard, however you choose to pursue that. Thank you. Definitely. Um, I believe you do have a, a guide dog, right? Yes. Um, my first guide dog sadly passed away three days before I left to go to Tokyo. So... Mm. He was awesome. He was the best. But now I have a new guide dog. His name is Uzo, and I got him at the end of April, and he's just perfect, except he loves water, which is great because I'm a swimmer, but it's also bad because I'm a swimmer because he always wants to get in the pool. And I mentioned earlier, my parents live at the lake, and every time I'm in the water, Uzo decides to get in the lake. So he really likes to swim. <laughs> Nice. And I know I was reading that your previous dog, he really had no interest in water at all, right? No, he was more interested in like rescuing people. And it's interesting because the first time I swam butterfly and he saw me swim butterfly, he thought I was drowning. So he pooped on deck. So I wasn't oh, allowed geez. to swim in front of him anymore, um, which, you know, it, it is pretty bad. I do look like I'm drowning. So he had valid reasons to do that. But yeah, he didn't really care. He would just kind of hang out on the pool deck where Uzo is very attentive and he watches everything and he gets a little whiny, like, what are you doing? Why can't I come with you? <laughs> <laughs> yo, yo. Like, I've, 
um, he loves to run with me too. So we'll run together sometimes on the track and he's, he's great. Awesome. And what schools have you gotten your dogs from? Both of my dogs were from Freedom Guide Dogs. Oh, nice. Same here. It's great to, to chat yeah. with another Freedom alum. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it just worked out really well that they were able to come and train me at home, especially like coming to the pool and seeing the dog at the pool with the trainer. That was um, a, re a really helpful, helpful type of environment to have them in. Absolutely. Yep. And then uh, Uzo, what, what breed is he and what uh, color? He's a Barbet. Um, oh, nice. He's a newer hypoallergenic breed. He's similar to the standard poodle. He's just a little smaller. So he's about 50 pounds. My last guy, Doug Blake, was 85 pounds. He was a big boy. Um, but Uzo, he has like the texture of a standard poodle, the curly coat, and he doesn't shed. And he's black. So nice. he's sized, I say, compared to Blake. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yes. Uh, let's see. I know I was also reading about, uh, I think you and your dad had done uh, some work in terms of helping the homeless. And I was really interested in that story. Yeah. So around the same time I started to lose my vision in 2009, the real estate market crashed. And my dad, who's a real estate agent, he didn't sell a home for six months. And so my family just had no source of income. My mom, she, her job was reduced to part-time. And my dad, he started working at Costco stocking shelves just to help provide some type of um, money for our family. And we lost our home. We had to sell our cars. Like we had nothing. And um, at the same time, my dad also realized he was an alcoholic and that it was not helpful for him to be drinking at this time. So he actually stopped drinking and he hasn't drank in almost 13 years. So he just, he's the backbone of our family. But he, once, once our family got out of that recession and we were able to get back on our feet, my dad and I both felt that we had been helped so much by our community that we wanted to give back in a way that we could. And so we started collecting and donating shoes to the Atlanta Mission, which is a homeless shelter in Atlanta. And I think we collected and donated something like, 30,000 pairs of shoes in a course of 10 years. Wow. That's tremendous. Definitely applaud you guys for that work. That's amazing. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so to wrap up here, definitely want to give you the chance to uh, promote any kind of social media. If people want to follow you uh, online, where can they find you? Yeah, my Instagram is McLeanHermes88. And then my athlete Facebook page is just McLeanHermes. Gotcha. Cool. And I will uh, include links to those in the show notes for this episode as well. Thank you. Alrighty. So again, we've been chatting with McLean Hermes here on Eyes Free Sports. And uh, McLean, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed the chat and uh, certainly wish you the best at the training center out there in Colorado Springs and look forward to following your career. Thank you. Absolutely. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports. Eyes Free Sports.